continue now our study uh, on the Holy Land. And you know this series by now. This is number 20 in our series thus far. Life Lessons from the Holy Land. And this evening, I'd like for us to journey to a very special place in Jerusalem. Many of you have been there. Uh, Some are planning even as we speak to go there. It's called the Garden Tomb. It's quite a serene and beautiful place. If you've gone there, uh, you have dealt with the hustle and bustle of very cosmopolitan Jerusalem. And this garden tomb area has proven, if you've been there, to be quite a refuge and retreat from the hustle and bustle uh, of it all. It's quite a beautiful place, believed by, really, a number of folks to be the garden of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. You've heard about him. The Bible speaks of him. And it's thought also by some to be the locale of the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ, where his body was laid to rest after he suffered the throes of crucifixion. In fact, there is in this area, and you are seeing some depictions of it now, a tomb, uh, an ancient tomb, which could very well be like one in which the Lord was laid. And it is not only located there in the garden tomb area, but there is also nearby a uh, an elevated hill. And if you look at it carefully, uh, you will be surprised to see what looks like the face of a skull or Golgotha, a Greek word meaning skull. And so some people think for this reason, this may actually be the site of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. This Golgotha in Greek, Calvary in Latin. I don't know if you knew that when we sing songs about Mount Calvary. It's a Latin term. It's the equivalent of Golgotha, which, as I mentioned, means skull. And all four gospel writers make reference to this quite unique place, Golgotha. Here, for instance, is what Mark said. He said, and they brought him, uh, the Lord Jesus, to the place called, here it is, Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now, the garden tomb, which we're speaking of tonight, is not the traditional location of the Lord's crucifixion and burial. The tradition, traditional site is uh, in the heart of Jerusalem, and uh, over it stands a well-known church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It is thought to be the traditional site of the crucifixion and burial of the Lord. Why? Well, there was a lady named Helena who became quite fascinated with the life of Christ and the events in his life during her travels in the Holy Land. She happened to be the mother of Emperor Constantine. And so in 325 AD, we're talking about a long time ago, she persuaded her son uh, to financially endow the construction of the church now known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, to mark the spot which she believed was the spot of the Lord's crucifixion and burial. So if the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, since at least 
AD 325 is the traditional site of the crucifixion. How is it that this site, the one under discussion tonight, how is it that the garden tomb came to be suggested as an alternative locale? Well, it was in 1883 that a British man, a military man uh, of high rank, he was in fact a major general, and his name was Charles Gordon. He made a uh, trip to this land, which is holy, the holy land, and there he found a, a site which really captivated his imagination and his thinking, because while there, for the first time, he noticed this hill, which had a very striking resemblance to the face, you see, of a skull. And he thought it was Golgotha. And also, while there, he noticed in the area there were many tombs dating from the time of the Lord Jesus. And he identified one in particular, which he thought for sure he was persuaded uh, was the place where the Lord's body was laid to rest. And he thought this because this tomb had a special distinctive. Uh, there was carved in the stone at the mouth or entrance of the tomb a, um, a slot in the bedrock in which he thought would have been moved a large circular stone, the likes of which is described in the gospel accounts, and which would have uh, stood in front of the entrance of the tomb, a uh, barring entrance to all those who might otherwise make an attempt at stealing the body. And so the combination of these two things, uh, this hill, which really bore a striking resemblance to the image of a skull, and this tomb persuaded General uh, Gordon that this was, in fact, the more likely site of the Lord's crucifixion and burial. And so it came to be known as Gordon's Calvary, or Gordon's Golgotha, uh, in other words, the garden tomb. And its location was located, it would have been located outside of the walls of ancient Jerusalem. And this would have been very much in keeping with Jewish tradition. Because if someone was accused of a capital crime and executed according to the laws of the state, if there was an application of capital punishment, that person would not be permitted to be laid to rest within the confines of the city walls. That person would have to be buried outside the walls. And so general... Uh, uh, Gordon here thought that that is another point that commended this site as a more likely location for the burial uh, of the Lord Jesus. Uh, its location in those days was at the intersection of a very, very busy uh, uh, intersection. And the reason why is that the Romans wanted uh, victims of crucifixion to be publicly displayed. So we know from historical record that the Romans chose this very site as a site of frequent crucifixion. You see, they didn't do it in private. No, they wanted it to have a deterrent effect. And so these impaled victims would be there under full display for all passers-by to take note of the fact that this fate may actually befall them should they defy the power of Roman government. 
So there is some reason for many uh, to, in fact, believe that this, the garden tomb, is the more likely site of the Lord's crucifixion and burial. As I mentioned earlier, the Bible tells us that, that Joseph of Arimathea uh, went to Pontius Pilate, who was the, uh, as you know, Roman governor at the time, in order to make requests for the body of this Yeshua, this Jesus, the Mas- who claimed to be the Messiah. Pontius Pilate agreed and handed over the body uh, of the Lord to Joseph, who, we're told in the Gospels, carried it to a nearby garden there to be laid in a tomb prepared, but never having been previously occupied. Archaeologists have found in this area not only a tomb, uh, perhaps like the one in which the Lord was laid, but also a large water cistern. In fact, it's the third largest in all of Jerusalem carved almost entirely out of the bedrock and perhaps supporting the notion that in the Lord's day, this was the site of an active and working, well-watered, well-irrigated garden. It's interesting, this discussion of the most likely spot uh, of the Lord's burial. In fact, we can find out a little more about it as we consult the scriptures, which I'd like for us to do in the remainder of our time. Could I encourage you to follow, therefore, along with me in Matthew's account of the entombment of the Lord Jesus. Uh, This is Matthew chapter 28. You're familiar with it, but it bears repeating. Matthew chapter 28. Let's find out more about this striking event. Matthew 28, take a look at verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, what day is the Sabbath? Yes, Saturday. That's an important day for Jewish people. It's so important that our rabbis have defended the sanctity of the day with all manner of rules and regulations, lest we intentionally or even unintentionally violate the sanctity of the day. What would it take, based on what you know about the attachment of Jewish people to Saturday as their congregational worship day, what would it take, do you think, to move Jewish people uh, away from Saturday as their primary congregational meeting day and to meet instead together for worship on Sunday. What in the world? I want to tell you something would take something really big. Something really, really striking to get zealous, sincere, uh, orthodox, passionate Jewish people to give up their Sabbath day in order to worship on Sunday. Something striking, something astonishing would have to be in view. Be thinking about what it might be. We'll see later. Verse 2. And behold, a severe earthquake occurred. 
You know, there was an earthquake earlier when the Lord died. And now there is an earthquake described here. An earthquake is a very effective attention getter. Did you know that? I wonder if God is saying through these series of earthquakes, listen, stop, pause, cease what you're doing, be astonished, take note. For an angel of the Lord, we read, descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it as if in triumph. The stone uh, was probably made of granite. It was a wheel, circular, probably about eight feet in diameter, perhaps almost a foot thick. It would be rolled into place in a groove in the earth, you see. Perhaps it would weigh more than four tons. And it would, as we described earlier, bar access to the tomb. You could not move it. It would be rolled downwards into this carving in the earth. And to move it out, it would have to be pushed upwards. We saw this kind of thing in previous trips to Israel. In the northern part of Israel, the Jezreel Valley, we were there a week or so ago here, uh, we saw, and you're seeing it before you now, demonstrated a tomb which is approximately 2,000 years old. You're looking at it on the screen. This would have been almost identical to the one in which the Lord was laid. You can see the circular stone in front uh, of it. Well, that being the case, I'm sure you agree, it certainly was lucky, wasn't it, for the Lord Jesus that the angels showed up to roll away the stone. Oh, lucky day, I'm sure he thought. Nope, not, not, not that at all. He did not need the angel to descend so as to roll away the stone in order to let him out. Its purpose wasn't to let him out. Its purpose was to let us look in. We have to look into the tomb and conclude something from it. And his, verse 3, appearance, the angel's appearance was, it doesn't say lightning, does it? It says, was like lightning. And here you see in the scriptures um, that the best one can do in describing heavenly realities is to render a vague comparison of heavenly realities, which we've not yet seen, to earthly realities. Hence, under inspiration, the gospel writer says, the appearance of the angel was like lightning. In other words, what he looked like was humanly indescribable. This is as close as a human observer could get to describing this supernatural striking uh, image, this angel. His appearance was like lightning and his garment was white as snow. And the guards, those were Roman guards, seasoned, veteran, hardened, Roman military men. They shook for fear. Roman soldiers do not typically shake for fear. They make people shake. 
but not these. These shook for fear of him, the angel, and they became like dead men. Those seasoned and battle-hardened, though veterans perhaps of many military campaigns, uh, they were acquainted with all kinds of dramatic events. Still, they weren't acquainted with supernatural realities and As a result, they now were on unfamiliar ground, and so the text says they shook for fear. See the word shook? Uh, That's exactly the same word as the word in verse 2, rendered earthquake. So what was happening here, if you could get back 2,000 years and kind of try it on for size, is that uh, the earth was quaking and the shoulders were quaking. Folks, there was a whole lot of quaking going on. You see, what was happening was not ordinary, was not everything's shaken. And the angel answered, this is verse 5, and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. Jesus who has been crucified. Could I tell you something? Um, if that's all we could conclude... Jesus, who has been crucified, then Jesus is nothing more than a has-been. And he, if he is nothing more than a has-been, you and I are really without hope. Oh, but that's not the case either. We have reason to be filled with hope. See, see if the cross, have you thought about this? If the cross is our only reality, we have no hope. But we can be hopeful because it's not just the cross, which is part of our reality. We are also left with the empty tomb. It's the combination of the two that gives us hope and which leads to eight of the most powerful words ever uttered in the history of humankind. Eight, that's all. Verse six, he is not here The cross plus the empty tomb leads to this angelic declaration. He is not here. Well, 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 why not? He has risen. Prove it. Empty tomb. The cross alone doesn't give us hope. That means the finality of the death sentence. But the cross in combination with the empty tomb tell us this is not really about the death of Jesus. This is about the death of dying. He left an empty tomb which demonstrates to us that our long-term historic belief in the finality of death is wrong. It doesn't have the final word. Prove it. It's the empty tomb. I'll bet the Lord Jesus was just so ever surprised when he found himself alive having died. No, no, not surprised at all. Look what the text says. He is not here, for he has risen. Look what it says. Just as he said. Imagine that. A God who keeps his word. Wow, that's refreshing. An authority figure who keeps his word. Yeah, this Jesus predicted this. This Jesus fulfilled it. 
This Jesus didn't just die on a cross. Could I tell you something? Being crucified was not a virtue in and of itself in that day. Many were. But it's different. Jesus was falsely accused and executed by the Romans at the hands of the Jewish religious leadership and then left his burial place entirely empty. And then the angel said, come, see the place where he was lying. Well, we've had an earlier brief discussion about how we don't even know where that place is. Helena said, this is the place. General Gordon said, this is the place. Why, why don't we know where the place of the Lord's burial is? Look at his first century followers, Jewish followers. Why didn't they enshrine his tomb? Well, I'll tell you why. Tombs are for dead people. They're not for resurrected ones. Thank God we don't know for sure where he was laid to rest. Don't you see? We serve a living Savior, not a dead one. We don't enshrine a tomb. We enshrine the truth of his winning victory over death. It's the last enemy. We can say now, along with the Apostle Paul, Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death has been removed. We enshrine the reality, not a particular place. Well, speaking about those early Jewish followers, they witnessed something. Holy moly. They, they witnessed first the crucifixion of Jesus and then they witnessed his his burial <laughs> then they witnessed his empty tomb and as if that's not enough then they were witnesses of his post crucifixion appearances he appeared he revealed himself physically to many and the evidence of this combination of events, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus, so transformed their thinking, their minds, their religious traditions, that the first followers of the Lord Jesus, almost exclusively Jews they were, they began to de-emphasize their uh, traditional worship day, the Sabbath day, and instead began to congregate on the Lord's Day, uh, Sunday, which marked the day of his resurrection. And it is that striking, evidentiary, historical event that to me, a Jew, is the only viable explanation for why the first century Jews moved their worship day from Sabbath day to Lord's Day, Sunday. You realize when we gather on Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection all the time. After rising up from death uh, and leaving behind only his grave clothes in an otherwise empty tomb, this magnificent one, this Jesus, uh, presented himself to some of his followers we're told of it in verse 9 of this text. It says, And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. Can you imagine? 
what would you do? And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. In order for these Galilean fishermen to take hold of his feet, can you envision their physical posture, how they had to stoop so as to lay hold of Jesus? And they were willing because they saw him alive from the dead. This text isn't about assuming a particular physical posture as much as it is about assuming a particular attitude of the heart. How willing are you to know the Lord Jesus? Are you willing enough to yield, to submit, and to lay hold of him, not as an equal, not as a pretender to the throne, but as the one before whom we must bow. If you have done that, it's a matter of faith. Then the life lesson based on the garden tomb is for you. It's this. You are now filled with hope because of the empty tomb. (laughs) The tomb is empty, but not your heart. I remember a time, don't you? And we have to remember it, lest we be tempted to go back to it. When my life was characterized by sheer and utter emptiness. And the empty tomb and what it represents has filled me to overflow. I'm not without hope. Look, 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 look. What the Lord Jesus did in leaving behind an empty tomb is the backdrop for what the Lord Jesus said. Anyone could utter words, but only one could back it up with this supernatural work of rising up from death, the evidence being an empty tomb and post-resurrection appearances. And this Jesus said, where I go, you will be also. And this Jesus said, I prepare a place for you. And this Jesus said, I am the first fruits of the resurrection. More will follow. Have you stooped low? Have you humbled yourself? Have you yielded human pride? Have you surrendered any vague and vain human attempt to live up to the uncompromisingly holy standards of God? Have you said, oh no, I fall short and therefore I fall at your feet and accept your Blood sacrifice for me and the evidence of your resurrection from the dead. And I accept the fact that your work vindicated you. You're no pretender to the throne. You've been vindicated by leaving behind an empty tomb. You gave incontrovertible evidence. It would stand up in a court of law that you rose just as you said you would. And that tells me. I can have unbridled confidence in every promise you have made. You are the God of all hope. I have hope, Lord Jesus. Since you rose from the dead, I have hope and utmost confidence in your promise of your soon return. 
If you have bowed at the Lord Jesus' feet, if you've laid hold of him, that means you have to get self out of the way. And you have to say, Lord Jesus, I surrender all of my religious traditions to the contrary. I surrender all of my human pride. I surrender my indifference to the greatest event in human history. I bow, figuratively speaking, at your feet, and I open my heart wide. I'm persuaded since you opened the tomb wide. I see nothing in it, but I would like to see you reside in my heart. Come in, Lord Jesus. You empowered to roll away through supernatural intervention this multi-ton stone. Wait for me to invite you to take up your abode in my life. Lord Jesus, I do. Come into my heart. Forgive my sin. Raise me up from spiritual death, just as you have been raised from literal death. And then, should I pass on even before you return, I now have the hope that I too shall rise up over death. For you the first fruits have gone before me. I believe your words because I see incontrovertible evidence of your work. Risen Savior, descend upon me in the form of your spirit. Come into my life. Fill me to overflow. Lord Jesus, Meaning Savior. What a fit name. For you came to seek and to save those which are lost. Lord Jesus, if tonight so much effort, singers of praise, musicians, technical workers, so much effort, yet... Lord, it would be so worth it if one person moved by your spirit would stoop low, submit, yield, bow, take hold of you humbly and by faith, see you to be his, her risen savior tonight. Lord, that is our prayer and boy. Is it ever in keeping with your will, dear Savior, of all who call upon your name by faith? Lord, have your way tonight. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.